we've uh, been in Job for a little while now. And uh, if you are anything like me, you have, um, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say, um, maybe just the difficulties of his life have worn on you a bit. I've been in this book a lot. And, um, you know, I, I, I look at it and I'm like, man, this guy and then his friends. Oh, my goodness. But last week we had a little glimpse of hope. And I just want to tell you that this week we're going to have a little bit bigger glimpse of hope. And sometime later on in the book, it's going to get even better. But there's still some things we need to kind of trudge through. And it's just the reality of Job's situation. So uh, bear with me as we do that. But I, I, want, to, I want to, you know, put that, that, uh, that hope out there for you because it's going to be coming uh, toward the end of the message. But last week we considered the first part of Job's response to Zophar. We saw that Job determined to respond actually to all three of his friends, even though he was speaking specifically to Zophar. And if you think about it, and I really hadn't thought about this before, but that means that there was some, there was some kind of unwritten dynamic taking place. Because it's clear that Job, when he speaks, it's, it's in the plural. So we can imagine that one of Job's friends has been speaking. They've been taking turns doing this. We're through this first cycle of their speaking to him. But you can kind of picture the others in the background nodding along, maybe even saying amen if they said it back then, right? Um, and, and, or just chiming in with, you know, you better listen to what he's saying or whatever it is. Because Job is really being ganged up on, all right? Yes, they're taking terms speaking, but they're behind one another and, and in agreement saying that, the, that, that he needs to respond to what they're saying, that he needs to agree with what they are saying. So Job appropriately defended his own wisdom and told his friends that their wisdom was just really common knowledge with their own personal spin on it. And I even asked the question last week, uh, do you kind of get a little bit annoyed even when someone acts like something that's common knowledge is just brilliance, right? It's like, well, you know, and I can't think of, you know, an example, but it's, it's like they say something that everybody knows and act like they're sharing this deep, dark secret. It's like, no, that's, that's pretty much everybody knows, right? So anyway, that's, that's kind of where, where uh, Job is coming from, and he's correcting them on this. He used the fallen creation to show that life is harsh and unfair. He basically talked about different aspects of creation, the, the bird world, the animal world, and so on. In every area of life, there is a, there, the strong pursue and destroy the weak. So the idea that the meek and mild are going to be just fine, even the natural world, puts that uh, uh, away from, from truth. Their view did not support uh, what God determined and how he works. And he even showed that by describing for them how God works through people and even through nations. Yet Job's friends spoke to him with authority and confidence. Now that was self-confidence. Um, again, what they were speaking wasn't right and they were speaking to him with this confidence from their experiences, their traditions, and their legalism. In other words, this is what I see. This is how I perceive life. This is what's been passed down to us. And these are the rules we need to follow. As long as we follow these formulas with this system of belief that we have, you're going to be just fine. He then told them that they had simply been lying. I mean, he just flat out tells them. They've been lying about his character and his actions as well as the character and actions of God. They've not been truthful. He declares that they have been worthless physicians. Those are his words. And warned them that they are the ones that are going to have to answer to God. 
Because his friends had done nothing but speak hurtful and untrue things, Job told them to just be quiet. And then he wanted to draw his attention to God. In other words, you're not helping me. I need to go to the Lord. And that's where we are today as we look at Job chapter 13, the end of that. We read chapter 14 earlier, but I want to read for you uh, 13, uh, chapter 13, verses 23 through 38. I'm sorry, 23 through 28. There is no 30 in that passage. So let's start in verse 23. As a matter of fact, let's back up just, just because. Let's go back to 20. And this is, this is going to give us a little bit of context. Only two things do not do to me. So he has started talking to the Lord now. Then I will not hide myself from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not the dread of you make me afraid. Then call and I will answer. Or let me speak. Then you respond to me. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Will you frighten a leaf driven and to and fro? And will you pursue dry stubble? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch closely all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Again, there's some very positive things there. But anyway, what I want to do is just go down through here and just illustrate uh, we're going to concentrate on some other things, but this is important for us to understand that th this transition that he has from his friends, and now he's, he's making this, this case, this, this, this plea to the Lord. And, and his first question here is, you know, why are you against me? What, what, what does he say? In verse 23, he says, he, Job wanted uh, God to show him his sins. I don't know about you, but that's not a request that I'm usually going to be making of the Lord, right? Show me where I, I have offended you. Okay, now remember, we're operating from the fact that Job has been living a consistent, blameless life, not sinless. We'll get to that in just a minute. But he says, show me my sin. He longed to hear from the Lord, we see in verse 24. He desired to hear from him. He felt that God treated him as an enemy. He was afraid of the Lord. Genuinely afraid. We even see back in the very, toward the beginning of when Job was speaking that, that he just he didn't know what was coming next. Job thought God was after him, that he was pursuing him. He related his present position with past sin. In, in other words, God is bringing things up from my past. I'm being punished for my past is kind of what he's talking about here. He believed that God had imprisoned him. Remember when he said that? He said, I, I, I can't even go where I want to go. He was imprisoned. And then... Job reasoned that he was suffering sin's penalty. So this is what we see as Job is approaching the Lord, and he's, he's just, he, he's struggling. He, he's begging God to speak with him. He's asking God questions. He's making some declarations here, but the whole thing is in and of itself just kind of a confusing mess if you think about it, right? And so as, as, as we go through all of this, what I want us to see here is that earlier in the book, Job expressed several times already that he felt abandoned and punished by God. This was not a completely new theme, although there's a lot of detail here. But here he described himself as suffering, as confused, and as being afraid. You see, part of what he believed no longer made any sense to him, right? Remember, he was pretty much with the other guys. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. I am a follower of the Lord. And boy, look at all the blessings that I have. Good things are happening to me. Now, in Job's case, he wasn't doing good just to receive good. He was, he was a man of faith. 
but he was still receiving blessings. But as a result of that not being able to sustain himself, to sustain itself, neither his situation nor the God who he worshipped was making any sense to him. He just couldn't figure out what is going on. You know, we, we talk about just having our world being turned upside down, and that's where Job is. But we have to, we have to wait a minute here because we've got to look back at the beginning of the list. We need to make this critical point that Job is begging for an audience with God. He longed to have the relationship that he felt that he once had because his experiences right now are kind of in the way of that. And so he's, he's again, struggling. He's viewing his experiences as God being displeased with him and he's not hearing from him and he needs, he wants to hear from the Lord. It, it kind of brings us back to what uh, Job said back in chapter 9, verse 2. He says, truly, I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? Now, i got to bring us back to what he was intending in the context there. When he was saying, I know it's so, he was talking about being fully aware of the belief system of the day. Yeah, you're telling me these things. I got that, right? But Job's question revealed what troubled him most? He missed his relationship with the Lord above everything else. Even though he had suffered loss, even though he was suffering in his own flesh, even though everybody had pretty much uh, left him, and then that was replaced by three rotten friends, right? What really troubled him the most was this seeming struggle that he was having with his relationship with the Lord. And he knew that the theology of his day would not help him. Folks, that's one of the saddest things that we have in our day is that there's a lot of people, and you know, theology is just the study of God, okay? It's, it's just a, a generic term for you know, what you believe, right? The belief systems, there's multiple that are out there today. The saddest thing is they really do, on the surface, satisfy people. They would, they would rather hear that, excuse me, than the truth. They would rather have that and hold on to something that preserves how they want to live or how they want to structure their lives rather than submit to the actual truth of who God is and what he expects. And by the way, in one sense, God expects very little. He expects us to respond in faith to what Christ has done. But in another sense, he expects everything. Because to have faith in Jesus means that I can't have faith in anything else, including myself. And we have to place our full faith and confidence in what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. So Job understood, you know, some of this stuff that, that I had been believing, it, it's, it's not cutting it with the experiences that I'm having. But yet I know in my heart that I'm not sinning against God. And yet I feel punished. So there's this back and forth. So he continues to go to the Lord and he basically says, life is short and life is hard. <laughs> okay? Um, in verses uh, 1 through Six of verse fourteen, and we and we've read this already. So kind of just follow along as I go through this. Although Job here is speaking in the third person, these words are deeply personal. He was really pouring his heart out about himself. That's what he was doing. This was not, you know, this general thing. Even though he's he's using kind of that that literary device, or at least the author did, but it's really personal. And what Job does in the first part here is he relates a person's life, his own life, really, if you think, continue to think about it that way, to a wilting flower or a passing shadow. In other words, life is short. He declares that the Lord determines how long a person lives. And that's going to matter a little bit later in the passage. But, but think about it for a minute. I, 
I, I know that for some of our young people, it's like, you know, life isn't short, man. I got my whole life ahead of me. Well, first of all, that's not a guarantee. That's not saying things to scare you. That's just not a guarantee. But secondly, none of us have the guarantee of tomorrow. But some of us in this room, and I don't mean just those who, you know, we'll just say have been retired for some time, but, but others who are, you know, somewhere in the middle of childhood and, and later adulthood would have enough mileage on us to say, man, it was, I mean, come on, I, I grew up in this area. I go back home, like, I used to play out in the backyard. My brothers and I, we'd be back in the bedroom. I mean, you don't know how many battles we fought from the armies that were just coming after our home. Now, we always won, but the point is that, you know, it, it, it just, just a day ago I was a kid. And so life is short. But Job also saw life as full of trouble. It's interesting that Job linked few days with many troubles. Right? That's what he says. Of course, this is why this section is entitled, Life is Short and Life is Hard. But the word used for trouble here is tremble or earthquake. So Job believed life was filled with events that shake us or unsettle our world. Now let's pause for him and ask ourselves, is Job right? Does life have events and experiences that shake or unsettle us? Yes. <laughs> yes, it does. We would agree with that. That is life, but is that all of life? So I'm just going to pose a question to you. Could it be that Job is speaking from his heart along with speaking out of his present circumstances and experiences? When you're struggling with something, how, how does your speech change, right? When your day is just going south, and we all, we all have them, right? How does that alter, you know, how we're expressing life, basically? And I think that's where Job is. I believe Job is struggling to see beyond his trials. And the thing is, who could blame him, Right? And of course, this can happen to us too. But Job adds that something else that extends beyond his physical and emotional experiences. In verses 3 and 4, Job confesses that sin is the real problem. He acknowledges that before God, all are unclean and that we are not able to make ourselves clean. So I want us to go back to, to chapter 13 for just a moment, something that we just looked at. And we're going we're to use the Bible in basic English just because it's a easy way to kind of transliterate some of these words, but it says, for you put bitter things on record against me and send punishment on me for the sins of my early years. That's the sins of his youth, right? And you put chains on my feet, watching all my ways and making a limit of my steps. Though a man comes to nothing like a bit of dead wood or like a robe, which has become food for the worm. That's moth eaten. Okay. All along, we have highlighted this idea of sinless versus blameless. We've, we've mentioned this a couple of times, and I just want to highlight this one more time in a little bit different way. Sinlessness is, of course, being without sin. John warns us about thinking that we're sinless, warns people, in 1 John 1.8, where he says this, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, blameless means to maintain a consistent faithfulness as we obey God and confess and repent of our sin. Hebrews tells us insight, gives us some insight into what that meant in the Old Testament. So what, what, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm going through here and saying, you know, Job understands that sin is the ultimate problem, but yet he's blameless. You see where I'm going? He's, st he's still a sinner, but he's blameless. But what does Hebrews tell us? And this is just some excerpts here 
from Hebrews chapter 11. Let me read this for you. Faith of Old Testament saints. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is from the New American Standard. For by it, the men of old gained approval. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what is promised, but because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect or complete. In other words, their completeness came with Christ. Okay? They were looking ahead. They trusted in what was coming. If you remember what Paul talks about when he's, when he's talking about Abraham's faith, Abraham's faith was, uh, was counted to him as righteousness. Well, that's the same application that we can make here. Their faith gave them approval. You see, same thing? So this is where we see Job. He, he understands he's a sinner. But he is a man of faith. And so he's pleading with God. The next thing that we see here is, and again, I, I understand, you know, we're, we're going from some warm fuzzies to more warm fuzzies here. But he says, man dies and is no more. <laughs> As he continues to just pour his heart out to God, I want us to focus on some illustrations that Job uses in verses 7 through 11 about the finality of death. He contrasts a man's life with, with a, basically a tree stump. Okay, It's kind of interesting, isn't it? He explains that what appears to be dead, remain, the dead remains of a tree, has hope of returning to life. We've all seen it before. Oh, look at that. There's a stump and there's now the new tree growing out of it. Sometimes they can be quite large. Sometimes there's more than one branch. But there's still kind of some inherent life in what looks like it's been dead. But he contrasts a man's life to that. Man does not have any hope. He cannot return back to life. We can't just inherently in the ground, right, or in a crypt or whatever, basically just say, okay, um, they're going to come back now. Right? We, we don't have that power. Job then likens a person's life to water disappearing or evaporating. In other words, Life is a vapor. David stated twice in Psalm 39 that life is but a vapor. Um, I've used this illustration a number of times, so please excuse me. It's just one of my favorite ones if you've already heard it. But especially this time of year, like you get a nice cup of hot chocolate and you're outside, right? And what happens? You get that little wisp of, of uh, steam that comes off of the hot chocolate. Well, that's a nice comforting, warm thing there, except that that little steam there is a reminder of us of how fast life goes. So we can't come back. Life is fast. Then he also says that man's life is like a dried up river. The idea here is the water is gone and it's not coming back. So life, um, we're, we're not coming back. It's fast, and it's final. Not exactly a heartwarming outlook on life, but I did say that there are some positive things that we're going to look at, and they're contained in this passage we're just going to wait a minute to see them, all right? I'm going to take the, the prerogative here to, to hold off until we get through this next part because I want to end with the positive stuff, all right? So we're going to move on to this next point here. Job tells God, you wear men down, okay? Uh, and by the way, 
you know, we can act all super spiritual, but come on. Haven't we responded to the Lord in these different ways? Now, maybe the words are different, but, you know, to, to say, to, to have expressed something like, God, what you're putting me through is wearing me out. It's the same idea. So the last argument Job brings to the Lord can only be described as a short slide back to hopelessness, right? Again, there was some hope in the previous part that we're going to look at, but then he goes right back to, this is bad. (laughs) The phrase in verse 16, you number my steps, gives us a link back to verse 5, where Job says that God determined how long we live. Now, we're, we're past 16 now, but I want us to keep that in mind. I want us to keep it in mind, God is the one who numbers our steps. God is the one who determines how long we live, right? But he, again, uses creation as an illustration, and he uses a mountain. And he basically says, just like erosion breaks down mountains or streams wear away rock and soil, the Lord wears down men. Job says that God destroys the hope of men. Now, that sounds pretty harsh and and even though i'm going to explain a little bit it's still harsh but it's not quite as bad as it sounds the thought here is that since god numbers their days this is where that all ties in he causes their time to run out so he's responsible for their hope running out in other words man has hope until he no longer has any more hope Again, we need to keep in mind Job is speaking from his present experiences. But this is another example of a good heart speaking from a bad perspective. He's describing in this last part here a hopeless life apart from God. But I did promise that we're going to see some good stuff here. I promise that we go to the positive. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of circle back. I haven't heard that phrase in a while. Um, hints of building hope. Hints of building hope. Now, we just saw that Job ended his plea with words of despair, right? He said, you destroy the hope of man. And he actually goes on to say, we didn't cover this. We're not going to cover everything we mentioned. But he says, his body will be in pain and his soul will sorrow because of this. Wow. But Job had already held out some hope. And in last week's study, Job said to his friends that he had faith God would give him an audience and that when God would ultimately rescue him. He said, my salvation's in the Lord. So this is not something completely new to Job. That was where we saw some of that hope last week. But again, I purposely overlooked this so that we could end with this idea of hope. I mean, I mean, it's not, it's real. This isn't just made up hope. This is real hope. And that's, that's where not only can we feel better about Job, but we can learn some things for ourselves. Let's remember that chapters 12 through 14 are all the same speech. But Job turned his attention from his friends to the Lord at the end of 13. We, we saw that. And in the heaviness of Job's heart, even as he brought his complaint before God, this man's true faith could not remain hidden. He, he just he can't contain that. Even with all the things he's experiencing, with all that's going on, with the suffering that he has, with the pain, the loneliness, and now just being attacked by his friends, it seeps out. So let's go back to chapter 14, verses 10 and 12. We're going to start off with putting things in context. So we're not to the, to, the, to the good stuff yet, but it says here, but man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise. Till the heavens are no more, they will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. The phrase until the heavens are no more is a descriptive way of saying forever. Right? Man 
is dead forever. In other words, people don't come back from the grave. But then we read, we see Job 14, 13 through 17. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go through this passage with us just step by step. But I want us to see that he immediately goes against really everything that he just said. He tells us why, but he goes against everything he just said. He says, Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past. Well, wait a minute. If the grave is permanent, then how can he just be hidden there until after God is finished being angry with him? Right? See, that means that there's something going on in his heart, and he continues to talk about that. Because he says that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. Remember, remember at this point, he's pleading with the Lord. And he's, saying, he's saying, appoint me a set time when you remember who I am again. Now, this next part is kind of different uh, because it's, it's a question. If a man dies, shall he live again? Some say this is a rhetorical question, that he believes that man will live again. Others believe that Job is thinking out loud, wondering if what he hopes is really true. You know, it's, it's kind of in the middle of all of his turmoil. It's like, you know, does man really live again? Right? There's, there's almost this desperation. But regardless, I, I don't know that the motive behind it or how he's asking it is the same, is, is that different the phrase, pro pro phrase proves ultimately that Job has no doubt that he will have life after death because of what he continues to say. Look at what he says. All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. Now, folks, here, here's where it really gets beautiful. First off, Job describes life as hard service, which is actually a term for military service. So Job is saying that living is serving time in battle. <laughs> now, now, again, that's not completely inaccurate, right? I mean, that's, there, there's some truth to that. We, what we, we, talk, we talk about something just, just battling through our day, right? Or if I can just, you know, muscle through this, or, we, you know, we use terms like that and, you know, work, you know, work our way out of something. There, there's so many ways that we talk about that. There, there is some sometimes super, almost like, like beyond human effort into getting through parts of our life. So you didn't know you signed up for military service when you were born, did you? But that's kind of what Job is saying. But the other thing that he says here is... is uh, Okay, so we have that reality, and that backs up everything he said so far. But the word change here stands for renewal. What we would say, we would replace that word. And by the way, it's, it's consistently used like this to resurrection. That is definitely a different tone than what we have seen Job express through this whole time. Man, once I get done doing my duty, right? That's what he's saying. Once I get done with this being a conscript in life, I'm going to wait till my change comes. I'm going to wait until my life is renewed, until I'm resurrected. Then he says, you shall call and I will answer you. Job is waiting. He's hoping for the time when God brings him back to life. And the last line, my transgression is sealed up in a bag and you cover my iniquity. The last line, Job understands his only hope for resurrection is that his sin is taken care of. Wow. Job has faith that the Lord will take care of his sin as if he placed it in a bag and sealed it over 
never to open again. He understands that that is the only way that I can have life again is if my sin is done away with. Now, Job didn't have the New Testament. Remember what Hebrews said. He was looking ahead. That wasn't going to be made complete until, what, until Jesus completed his work. But he was looking ahead. And we're going to see that even more a little bit later on. And if you remember, even as we kind of turn our, turn our minds back to the earlier part of the book, what did he say? I need a mediator. If, if I had someone who could come between me and God, I'm sure that we could work things out. So what are these hints of hope that we see here? Just to kind of put them in our own words. In death, put me in a safe place until you remember me again. I will wait for the day when I am finally free from the troubles of life through the resurrection. And there is an appointed time when you will desire what you have made. You're going to want me to be with you. Wow. That's what Job is hoping for. That's what Job is actually counting on. And again, you can tell, you can see the struggle just because of what he's been through. He's like, you know, I, I, you know, life is hard. Life is tough. You know, I, I, nobody returns from the grave. But can I hope? Should I hope? Yes. Yes. It's almost like he's convincing himself. I do have that hope. I believe. I'm waiting. I'm waiting to be changed. I'm waiting to be renewed. I'm waiting to be transformed. I know it's going to come. So where does that leave us this morning? What is the case that Job has brought before the Lord? He says, life is short. You determine how long we live. Right? He's acknowledging that. That's not an accusation. That's an acknowledgement. Life is short because you limit how long we live. Now, we know that part of that really is because of the fall, right? That's what God determined. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The death process is going to start. Life is trouble-filled. He tells the Lord, you bring the trouble. Now, even though Job's perspective isn't crystal clear here because he's in the middle of this and he has no information, is he totally wrong on that? Did God not allow this to take place? Okay. We're saving that. That's something we're going to work through a little bit more in detail later on. But God allowed this to happen from our perspective. Job says... <laughs> You're killing me, right? I mean, literally, like you're killing me. Death comes to all. Only you can give life again. That's what he says to the Lord. Life has pain and sorrow. You wear people down. It's a reality. It doesn't matter who we are on this earth. Without the Lord, there's an ultimate point where we won't have any hope apart from the Lord. Because he also says, but I will hope. You will give me life again. Amen. Silly question, but one needs to be asked, folks. When did Job's circumstances change? To where now he's saying, I have hope. None of his circumstances have changed. As a matter of fact, his friends aren't done chewing on his carcass yet. Right? They're still coming after him like a bunch of wild dogs. The criticism isn't over, his illness isn't over, his family's dead. 
all of his stuff is gone. It's not been returned. And he still has no idea what hit him. His experiences haven't changed. But in reality, Job hasn't changed either. Yeah, he's had to learn a couple of things through this. But in his heart of hearts, he knows that his hope is in the Lord. He desires so much to have that relationship with him. So let's use Job's own analogy to say this. In the aftermath of a massive earthquake that took place in Job's life, we know that there's this Richter scale thing, right? And if there's a two, and we're like, you know, right? But boy, in some parts of the world, a five can level everything. In some parts of the world, you know, a seven or eight is really big. And we know that um, in Southeast Asia, what was it like an 11 or something like that? I can't remember, but it was big. The one that caused that tsunami. Hundreds of thousands of people died. And they basically, I think we actually think it was a nine. But the point is this. They know that there have been stronger ones before. So sometimes it's the, the, the level of the earthquake, so to speak, doesn't matter as much as just what it's hitting. You know, we can kind of relate that to our lives. But with Job, everything got hit. If you think about it, it was like a city being flattened. Okay? And if we can kind of take that analogy a little further, uh, Job was underneath all of it. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's where he's at. But he clung to the hope of the resurrection, of the life that was to come with the Lord. And folks... That's our same hope. That is our same hope. So as we just kind of conclude things here, what we really have to ask ourselves is first, do you have that hope? Do you have the hope of the resurrection? Um, do you have any hope for spiritual life, which of course will then one day be joined with our renewed physical bodies, but... Do you have hope of spiritual life after this life is over? Or are you only looking forward to spiritual death? And in your, in your life, are you just waiting for all of this to be over? Now, we can fill our time with all kinds of things, all kinds of entertainments, all kinds of padding to dull the pain, to take our mind off of the reality of all of this. But Job says, and, and again, he's partially correct, that ultimately our time runs out and God takes our hope away. There's, there's no more opportunity. That's as real as the next breath you take. So if you don't have hope in Christ, then you don't have hope in the life to come. And I want to encourage you to place your faith in what Jesus did. The Bible tells us, and I'll be very, very brief about this, but it says that he is our first fruits, the first one born from the dead. Amen. He, through his resurrection, is showing all of us you're coming to. If you place your faith in me, what I just did, I'm going to do for you. Job didn't have all that information, but he was clinging to that. Folks, you, you have the revealed word of God. And so I want to encourage you, if you don't know for certain today that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that you've placed your confidence in him, and, and all your confidence only in him, then again, I want to encourage you to do that today. I want you to have that hope. If you are a follower of Jesus today, if you believe that what he did on the cross took away your sin, 
gave you life, not, not just, you know, um, a good feeling now, which is important, but that hope for the future, that hope for forever, then I want you to understand, just like Job, that he rested in that through some horrific times. And folks, I, I've tried to contrast gently and carefully the experiences that we have compared to Job's. In no way, shape, or form have I ever tried to communicate, I've tried not to communicate, actively tried not to communicate, that your, the things you go through or things I go through are lesser. They're only lesser in degree, right? And there's even some folks that we can name, they'd be few and far between, that you can almost say, well, you know, them and Job, it's, <laughs> they're neck and neck. I, I don't want to win that, by the way. I don't want to win that contest. There's no t-shirts. I want to be like Job, right? Unless it's after the fact, right? <laughs> so, so we get that. But at the same time, when we're going through those experiences, what, what, what Job was able to cut through everything with was knowing that not only could he have a relationship with God, but that one day, even though he's looking at his body and he's thinking, he, he, a couple times he said, I only have a short time to live, right? He thought he was a goner. And there's, there's absolutely no, I mean, come on. Let's, let's, let's put him in a hospital bed, right? They'd be calling the family in. It could be any time. Seriously, he is racked with this horrible disease from head to toe. And it affects him inside as well. It's a total sickness. He, he says, my, my, my skin is flaking off. It's, it's, it's black and it's crusty. And he's got seeping wounds all over his body. I mean, I'm not going to be gross. I'm trying to tell you, you know, the doctors are looking at their charts and they're saying, man, if this guy doesn't have a turnaround soon, he's gone. Job knows that. But he cuts through all of that with a simple faith that says, even if he takes me out, he's going to bring me back again. <laughs> wow. That, that's, that's not a magic wand, folks. That is real, applied trust in who God is. I mean, he, he's still shaky about that. He's trying to figure this out. But we can see this progressive path out of and through what he is going through. And he's also on a learning curve. And by the way, have you ever seen those, they call it a hockey stick, right? Where something is progressing upward and then, right? Well, we're going to get into the later chapters where God says, um, let's have a conversation. <laughs> Job's learning curve is going to go through the sky. <laughs> okay. But right now, he's making some incremental steps. And I truly believe that's possible because he has faith. If he didn't have any faith, then he would not seek an audience with the Lord. Right. And he certainly wouldn't say, he's going to change me. Right? But he does. And so in your deepest, darkest times, remember, and, and, and I mean this sincerely, the very worst thing that could possibly happen is we look to being with the Lord. We look to having not only our presence with him, but actually having a renewed, resurrected, perfect body. A perfect body with a renewed soul that is in complete, total, what? Relationship with God. Job sought that here and now, but he also trusts in that for the future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as, 
it's just hard for us not to struggle with Job. It's hard for us not to also take some of our own experiences and slide them right in to fill in the blank of, of, of what he's going through, comparing it to what we're going through. And Father, without cheapening what anybody, and really in some ways everybody, has gone through, varying, different, yes, but we've all gone through some very tough tests. The extreme of Job's is really there to illustrate for us how extreme his faith was. So I pray, Lord, that that would challenge us, but also comfort us. Teach us. Prepare us. We know that Job's suffering lasted for months. It was excruciating and intense. He didn't know where or how or why it was coming. He just knew that ultimately you had allowed it to take place. He even blamed you for it. Father, we've been there. We've done that. But Lord, again, we, we just remember that his complaints, that his sorrow, that his wonderings all came from a heart of faith. A heart that truly trusted in you even though he did not understand you and did not understand his circumstances. Oh God, we ask, we, we beg that you would give us the grace to have that endurance, even as the scriptures tell us, the endurance of Job. That wasn't just making it through. It was actually placing his confidence in you through the process. We look forward, Lord, to what you're going to teach us through this book about ourselves and about you as we progress. So we ask that you bless this time. We ask, Lord, I pray, Father, that we would apply it. Sometimes we even need to kind of retrofit it back to things that we've experienced before and, and, and put some of those things to bed. Some of the trials that we've had, that we, they still sting because we didn't always have the answers. We have some principles here, Father, to work on that even. So I pray that you will heal. I pray that you will prepare. And I pray that you will comfort. Because ultimately, we're going to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen.